Hey everybody, welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering every single horror movie franchise, one movie and one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian. Uh, Jerry is off tonight. He had some family things he had to deal with, so uh, I am kind of flying solo in the host chair tonight. And, you know, I remember back when we covered Rob Zombie's 2007 Halloween and when we got into the Lost Boys sequels, things got a little bit negative. And I would say that those are among my personal least favorite shows when you get Grumpy Mike for the whole show. So we have, I don't want to say we've assembled a team of complete defenders of the Nightmare on Elm Street remake tonight. I don't think we're going to have people that are saying like, you know, this movie like puts Wes Craven's original masterpiece to shame um, or anything like that. We're not completely crazy, but I've got some friends that are here to help, you know, talk me down from the ledge, offer constructive criticism of the movie um, and maybe point out some areas where, you know, where it shines. Have I even introduced the movie we're covering? I have not. This is the Nightmare on Elm Street remake from 2010 from Platinum Dune Studios. You know, and I was going to lead off by saying it's the worst movie I've ever seen. And that's not true, because especially as a horror movie fan, like it's a competently made movie. It might be the most disappointing movie I've ever seen. And I can tell you, like, if you really want to fuck with your children's heads, don't tell them you're mad at them. Tell them you're disappointed. So that's how I feel about this movie. It's, it's disappointing. Uh, but we have a, a trio of folks here to help out tonight. First up, we have the editor-in-chief and host of the... Uh, uh, header in... Let's try that again. First up, we have the editor-in-chief of Grumpire.com and the co-host of the Grumpire podcast. We have Elby. Hello. How are we doing? Uh, I'm a little tired. Yeah, I'm definitely... I think feeling that today is like definitely we were recording this the day after the race was called for Joe Biden. And after a day of some euphoria, I would say now everyone's kind of crashed and <laughs> reality is, you know, still there. A little bit sleepy myself. So, but, you know, fitting for a Nightmare on Elm Street episode, LB, don't yeah. fall asleep. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that. But, <laughs> Next up, we have from Bloody Disgusting columnist Brian Kuyper, a longtime friend of the show and occasional host. Brian, how are we? Uh, doing okay. Uh, also feeling a bit tired, but yeah. uh, hey, whatever we do, don't <laughs> fall asleep. You know, um, I have 
thoughts about this movie. We'll see how mm -hmm. it goes. See what happens. Yeah. And listeners, you can't see this, but Brian did an incredible job of shaving his head, and I'm very jealous. <laughs> I went full Tommy Jarvis, that's right. You have the Stone Cold Steve Austin circa 1988 look going, and <laughs> I, I can no longer, I look like Uncle Fester when I shave my head at this point, so I can no longer, no longer do that. No. Last, we have from the upcoming podcast, Bodies of Horror, we have Nicole Goble. Hello, hello. How are you feeling tonight, Nicole? Oh, I'm feeling... I'm feeling great. I've had a couple of micro naps, mm -hmm. some adrenaline injections. I'm on top of the world. You've been popping like three months of ADD medication and like a two week span. <laughs> you know it. You getting, know up, it. getting upset when the pharmacist won't like immediately refill that. Like so, exactly, exactly. Know? How dare you maintain ethical standards, sir? How dare you? <laughs> All right, so we are here to talk about. The 19, oh, 1990, the year 2010 <laughs> remake of the Nightmare on Elm Street movie directed by Samuel Bayer. Um, you know, and I guess, you know, I want to pose this to the panel. Um, when the call went out looking for some friends to talk about this movie tonight, um, what had you volunteer to say, sure, we'll spend a Sunday evening talking about this one? I see the shoulder shrug Maybe. over there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I say for me, for me, um, I, I just love the series so much. Any chance to talk about any Nightmare on Elm Street movie, I'm going to take. Even, even this one. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, because uh, you know, I really do deeply love this series back to uh, childhood. So, um, and I don't hate this movie. I guess I, I didn't find myself sorely disappointed. I, I just, I, I don't think it's great or mm -hmm. necessarily even good, but I, 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 the highest praise I can give it is I don't hate it. <laughs> uh, so, 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 we're, so we're going from, from Mike, who's way down the scale to, to me, who's slightly above that. And I'm, I'm interested to see where, where everyone Let's else see where it goes. Yeah. Well, Elby. I yes. <laughs> oh, so I was gonna say, Elba, you had said like you know you appreciate. Well, you had said like you appreciate some of the things it's attempting, even if it fails, right? Right. Um. You know, before Grumpire, I was uh, or I had a column at Cinepunks that was aptly called "LB Defends a Remake." So, like, I, I kind of have this like solemn duty, I guess, to defend mm -hmm. remakes. Um, this one, it's it's a bit harder to defend. Like, um, yeah, it it tries to do a lot of things that it just doesn't really follow through with, and part of that is due to expectation. Yeah, you know, and um, like I just don't think that they tried hard enough, honestly. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think we'll definitely dive into that. I think it's a really fair assessment of it right now. Now, Nicole, I believe you're going to be our outlier on this one because <laughs> if I remember correctly, you have this just behind like Rashomon and Godfather Two in terms of like <laughs> movies of all time. Pretty much, yeah. Um, 
I really like this movie. Mm-hmm. I think um, I've done a rewatch of a bunch of the early mid aughts remakes and it's kind of made me appreciate this more Mm -hmm. um i think this does some interesting things it tries to set itself apart um from the original and from the franchise that came before it and i like that it's it goes hard in that way um, yeah, it's not perfect, but I, having done a deep dive into some of those remakes, I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. They're actually trying a few different ideas. Okay, I am just taking some notes by, I feel like I'm in a debate right now, like taking notes <laughs> here by little sets itself apart. All right. Um, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the background of this movie and specifically the period of time this existed in horror because you know as lb and nicole both noted um this was like the heavy on remake horror period right now time Mm -hmm. from like 2003 to i don't want to say this is the death knell because that's really an unfair (laughs) statement um but like halloween 2 in 2009 and a nightmare on elm street in 2010 i think they really represent the kind of end of the remake cycle and then you saw Blumhouse really starts to take over and then the rise of like some more independent uh, studios like A24 start to take over with their version of horror and the kind of remake train has, if not ended completely, um, then it's at least like really slowed down at this point. Um, (laughs) What what do you got? (laughs) No, I mean, Blumhouse, like to this day, like pretty much all of their output is non-original content you know Mm -hmm. like i mean i'm not arguing against you because like at that moment yes correct (laughs) but like you know these days i mean you have halloween again um even like fantasy island i mean that's Mm -hmm. that's something that already existed i mean they did something different with it right but um like i I don't know i I have issues with Bloomhouse right now, but and I don't have to okay. get into that. <laughs> well, we can definitely have those issues. No, and it's okay to have those issues with them because, you know, they are, and I would argue that like Platinum Dune was like the proto Bloomhouse in terms of yeah. how they kind of like handle these franchises and what they do with them. And you could look at like mm-hmm. Halloween 2018, it's more of a continuation of the series rather than a, a straightforward reboot. Um, And you're right, like Fantasy Island is just adapting a property that like already exists out there and doing something kind of weird with it. Um, But what you have here, like in 2003, like the same year you get Freddy versus Jason, which ends really like puts a a rubber stamp on the classic period of like Mm. 80 slasher movies. And it's a really, I think, even though that movie also has a lot of flaws, it's a really fun kind of fitting end to that period that a lot of us grew up with in the VHS era. Um, 2003, you have Michael Bay and Brad Fuller come out with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, which is commercially very successful. You know, mm-hmm. they pump like 10 million into it and it pulls $100 million out of it overall. And my idea, like out of all the major franchises, if you're going to start with a reboot of a series, like that is probably the best one to start with just because the, 
ratio of like excellent movies to like what the fuck are they thinking movies in that series <laughs> is pretty high like there's a pretty big gap there um you get one classic movie with the original texas chainsaw massacre from 1974 and then i would have argued at that point three movies that are at, at best watchable and i know a lot of people love texas chainsaw massacre too i used to be one of those people <laughs> And I find it harder and harder to rewatch that movie. It's just kind of like a nothing burger of a movie. It's like, if you don't remember the Wendy's commercials of, from the 80s with the Where's the Beef, I feel like that about TCM too. <laughs> but what were some of the other titles from this? I feel like we can do the Scream 4 quote right now where Kirby just lists, lists oh, off God. like every yeah. remake. <laughs> um, but you have I mean, like getting out. Getting outside of Platinum Dunes, you also had the Prom Night remake, mm -hmm. which I think was Green Gems mm -hmm. uh, release. So, you know, I think that while Platinum Dunes really had the fire behind them, I think there were other companies that were like, oh, we really need to be pumping out remakes yeah. of these properties. And um, uh, there's another one that I'm drawing a blank on uh april fool's day i don't know yes. when mm -hmm. it came out um but i think it was within that time frame as well and i don't think it was blumhouse or platinum dunes as well i think it was kind of in that middle sector so mm -hmm. um i mean it really was just a complete uh garden of your remakes and reboots Okay. I was just going to ask, where in the timeline do the Dark Castle films fall? That was 90s? I, I have a terrible memory. Dark Castle. Like House on Haunted Hill. And, yeah. Uh, Late 90s. Late yeah. 90s. Okay. Yeah. So like 13 Ghosts, House on Haunted Hill, mm. like things of that nature. Sure. Um, Late, I think like 99, 2000, like right in that kind of general area, era, general kind of area there. You know, a couple of that from this particular period that I kind of like a lot uh, are like the Last House on the Left remake and the Hill mm -hmm. remake. Mm -hmm. um, they're kind of in a weird way. I, I feel like because um, the original versions of those, you know, speaking of Wes Craven films, um, are you know they're really rough and documentary mm -hmm. style, and and they kind of remade them into these slick sort of. Uh, um, polished sort of movies, which was really strange, but somehow worked for me uh, in those cases. Um, I, I absolutely love that the yeah. uh, Tales of Eyes remake. I love it. Yeah, so I, much. I know a lot of people prefer that one to mm -hmm. the original. Uh, I I like it a lot. Uh, I don't go that far, but I do like that remake a lot. I think it's uh, had a lot going for it, um, and it's really imaginative, and it's kind of what mm -hmm. you hope for could have happened with, with the Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm -hmm. um, right. Um, I think what's, in, what's yeah. interesting is when you get into some of the movies that like they were one-off movies before, like Last House on the Left, um, like your um, Hills Have Eyes, like My Bloody Valentine, you sometimes get better results. And I think LB, to your point, what you said, like the lowered, mm -hmm. ex there's lowered expectations. Like you don't have as you don't have seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven movies to kind of compare everything to at that point. Um, I know for me, like I really like Rob Zombie's Halloween too. I hate his initial take on the series, 
But the second movie, I think he's just like, the gloves are off. Like I can just do whatever I want. I'm playing with house money. And it's, you know, I, it's, I think it's hard to say, like, I hate this movie because it doesn't feel like a Halloween movie, but then say, but I really love Halloween three, which also doesn't feel like a Halloween movie. Um, like that can't be the reason you don't like that movie. Um, there are movies that just kind of exist, like the Stepfather remake, like that's kind of there. Um, a year before this, like I love the Friday the 13th remake. In a better world, like Derek Mears would have six Jason movies under his belt right now. And we'd be talking about him um, much more often. Like I thought through the credit of that movie that uh, the same writers for Freddy versus Jason, like Shannon and Swift, you know, it's not a perfect movie, not a perfect script, but it was written by, I think, a pair of gentlemen that understood that it worked about that series um, and kind of like got to the core of it. Um, are, there, are there some issues with it? Of course there are. But, you know, like Hush Jason, if you're a Batman fan and Batman Hush, like you may not like the bandage Jason at the beginning overall, but I, I really dug, I really dug that movie. Yeah, so I, I guess, just watched it this morning and it's like, wow, this is... Mm-hmm. This works really well. See, and I, I'm not a big fan of the Friday the 13th remake. I think that they take out a bit too much of what I really like about the original franchise. Mm -hmm. The lore of Jason. And I miss that in watching it. I think it's a well-made movie. And I, if I take myself out of the, I'm watching a Friday the 13th movie, I really like it. <laughs> it's a really <laughs> good little slasher movie. But I have come to love the lore of Friday the 13th so much that when I see bits of that extracted, I just, it makes me sad. I just find that so I, I what is so fascinating about that is how thrown together the Friday the 13th movies are. Um, I mean, you literally have like Phil Scuderi sitting at a restaurant at the North End in downtown Boston, just like, hey, in this scene, the dude's going to take a cleaver to the head and he's going to, or, yeah. you know, he's going to be walking upside down and he's going to get like an axe to the crotch. Hey, that's a good kill. And like, literally, like, that's how those movies were thrown together and now it's like you know we invest we look at like the first five minutes of say the final chapter where it lays all the history out and we're like well that's just like chef's kiss it's beautiful it's perfect and it was literally put together by like a college intern that could give like two shits like i don't know you know (laughs) nicole Uh, i really like your criticism there um because you know it, it shows that you're able to separate from from the uh, original series. Like, so a lot of people I think are unable to do that. And I like that you say this will be, or, you know, the, this movie would be good if it wasn't a part of this, this um, you know, this character, the series. Because um, a lot of people, when they have problems with remakes, it's because they have issues thinking of the remake as a separate entity from the first or you know from the original 
And um, that's what we really have to do in order to like look at them and, and fully process what they are. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, you have to really be able to separate the two. So I really appreciate you saying that, Nicole. Yeah. And, you know, going back to kind of the Craven uh, remake renaissance that we had with The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, I, I'm definitely in the camp that I love The Hills Have Eyes remake. I think it really does something special mm-hmm. with kind of the uh, blueprint of the original mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. I don't like the remake of Last House on the Left. I've come to really love the original for how just deep, dirty, and smarmy it is um, because it's really craven and um, Sean Cunningham wanting to do some different level exploitation type film and I feel like the remake misses the element of that. I, I, I agree with all of that and I think LB to your point about looking at the franchises as different entities at that point like you know like I said at the start with like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street Freddy versus Jason is a clear like marking point. Like this series is over as of right now. It ends here. And then what we're going to do is going to carry forward. It's almost like looking at universal horror and hammer horror that tackled like the classic monsters. Like both of them have movies about Dracula, movies about Frankenstein, movies about the Wolfman. Um, and you can love them both. Now, James Whale's Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and the universal Frankenstein movies are so far removed from what Hammer Horror did with theirs, with um, First of Frankenstein, Horror of Frankenstein, and Peter Cushing being a real villain in the role of Dr. Frankenstein throughout those movies. And like the look, the feel, the aesthetic, everything about those movies are wildly different and you can love them both. And I think a lot of horror fans would say they love them both, but when it comes to these remakes, a lot of horror fans have a very hard time accepting them. Like your remake ruined my childhood. It's like, man, mm-hmm. if, if a if a remake of a movie <laughs> ruins your whole childhood, then yeah, really, what was there to ruin at that point? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So my take on remakes, I don't feel any different about them than I feel, say, about a sequel, a bad sequel to a movie. Like John Carpenter's Halloween is always going to be like a near perfect movie to me. Absolutely love it, adore it. Very little bad to say about it. Rob Zombie's Halloween, as much as I do not like that movie, it doesn't diminish my appreciation for what Carpenter did in any way, shape, mm-hmm. or form. As as like a movie like Halloween Resurrection, like just because Halloween Resurrection exists it doesn't mean that John Carpenter's Halloween is any worse off at that point. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in hearing from the panel, the esteemed panel we have tonight <laughs> of your, your thoughts on like the place of a remake and what does it enhance, does it detract from or not do anything compared to the original film or series? Well, my thought on this has been, um, okay, if a remake is bad, it's just going to draw attention to the original. Mm-hmm. It's going to make people look at the original and enjoy it more. 
and say, oh, we've got this other thing. And, oh, that was funny. Ha, ha. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's fine. I mean, it's not going to make it any worse. If a remake is good or even great, you have two great movies. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you have, <laughs> you have Howard Hawks as mm-hmm. The Thing and John Carpenter's The Thing. I mean, that's a lucky <laughs> place to be in, right? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. so, I mean, we, and, and, you know, then, then sometimes, and this is outside the horror genre, you get a movie like John Huston's Maltese Falcon. That movie had been made twice before. Those other two versions, almost forgotten, because they're really not that great. I mean, they're okay. But John Huston's version of that movie is a pinnacle of filmmaking. And so that is, occasionally having that opportunity to look to a remake that is superior Mm -hmm. uh, far superior to anything that came before is really something and um so i mean look at invasion of the body snatchers which Mm -hmm. made in the late the mid 50s the late 70s and Mm -hmm. i think the early 90s like abel ferraris three excellent films and three movies that really kind of kind of like mirror the neuroses of society at that time like they're able to like do the same thing but in much different ways and kind of shine a light on like these are the problems that we're facing right now these are the things that really trouble us um all of those movies can exist in their own little bubble in their own little space and you can appreciate Mm -hmm. them for what they are i go to the fright night remake for that Mm -hmm. um because the the original fright night of course has a lot to say about uh, you know, uh, AIDS and um, suburban all, paranoia. And, yeah, yeah, all, all that stuff, and and like otherhood, and that was really great for that that time period because you know a lot of people weren't uh, really paying attention to those types of things during you know the Reagan years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's that, and that's that's great and fantastic, and I will I will really always appreciate. The, the, the original Fright Night for that. Um, the Fright Night remake has a completely different set of, of things to look for in society. You know, it has to do with um, how we socialize boys, um, how, you know, boys don't always have friendships, like, like really enriched friendships. And, um, you know, the, the, the tension between Charlie and, and Ed in the remake is much more present and, and um, meaningful mm-hmm. than in the first movie. And I really appreciate that because like we're at a time right now where we need to nourish boys to, you know, have these kinds of relationships that way, you know, we can, they can form better relationships with, with everyone, you know? Um, so like, I, I feel like, I don't have anything else to say. Okay. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> I, lo- no. I lost. I lost it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I agree. I mean, like, well, I, I I agree that like again, looking at two movies from two completely distinct time periods and just taking the core of those movies, it's like it's almost like I've been watching a lot of baking shows lately as a way <laughs> to relax. But like taking a sim- a recipe and just adapting it to make it your own and having like your own unique creation or spin on it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when I think of a high mark in remakes, my mind goes to Suspiria. Yeah. I love 
love, love, love the remake of Suspiria. Mm-hmm. Now, does that at all interact with my uh, love of the original Suspiria? No, absolutely not. They're different movies. I love Argento. My cat's middle name uh, is Argento. Like, I, <laughs> I absolutely love his films. But it does nothing to detract from my relationship with those films with mm-hmm. and and I think that when we talk about oh well this remake ruined my childhood well I'm I'm sorry do you not have the original films that you can access at all <laughs> um let me help you on that journey because those films still exist you can still watch them you can still love them you can still appreciate them if the remake isn't for you it's not for you you don't have to watch it you don't have to consider it canon you don't have to do any of those things you mm-hmm. they exist on different planes a thing that i look for in remakes is do something different bring something different to the recipe add an ingredient add something new mess with the bake time um whatever you're doing do something different um, and that's going to help me sit down, watch the film, and assess it as a piece of your work, and not just something that's a uh, copy and paste. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think John Carpenter has one, of, and Stephen King have like two of the healthiest outlooks on like remakes and adaptations. Where John Carpenter, who as brilliant as he is, is kind of a mercenary. And his feelings on remaking his work is like, I'm going to hold out my hand. You're going to put a check in it. The number of zeros <laughs> on that check is going to determine how enthusiastic I am about my work <laughs> being remade. Um, and good for him because he knows like, look, you know, come at the king. You're not going to top what I did, but it's not going to diminish what I did either. Like, so have mm-hmm. at it. Um, and Stephen King has always said like, when, when, when there was a period of time that like Stephen King's work was being adapted into like lesser films overall. Like you went from having like Kubrick and and Cronenberg adapting his work to not them. And I just can't recall (laughs) off the top of my head. You know, they asked like, does it bother you that your movies are like not very good? You know, and he's like, no, because my work is still on the shelf. Like <laughs> I wrote the book, it's there. If you want to see my work, just pull your pull the book off your bookshelf and it, everything I did is right there. I think and that's- these... a, Oh, no, go ahead. I just think it's a really, it's a really healthy way to look at it that as fans, we could learn from uh, in terms of like how we interact with these movies. These are stories that are being told that are timeless, you know? So any kind of story, you know, you go back to campfire tales, um, ghost stories, that kind of thing. Like these things are handed down for generations and generations and generations. So what's the difference in that? And, you know, Christine, you know, or, you know, I know Christine's not remade, but like, you know, (laughs) there's, there's no reason to, to think of these things in any other way other than here's a story that is going to live on in different ways and take on 
new life or not you know right. so like there, there's no reason to be angry about it and what's funny is no one ever gets upset about the nth adaptation of dracula like it's mm-hmm. okay that we we interpret that one over and over or the nth interpretation of like shakespeare like but mm-hmm. and i think it's something about not i don't want to say horror fans i think it's something about horror fans specifically of my generation and maybe just a little bit younger that there's maybe this sense of entitlement that mm-hmm. comes with saying like how dare you um right. how dare you sir you know like do this to us as fans that and we we <sighs> it's the fan fiction generation i think um, well and i love that you brought up shakespeare one of the classes that i had to take as a theater major was production styles of Shakespeare, which was all about adapting Shakespeare. So we would spend the year looking at all these various adaptations of different Shakespeare's plays. We would have to pick a play and at the end of the semester, write a treatment for it and produce a couple of scenes of that play and you're exactly right like nobody gets upset about how many adaptations of comedy of errors Mm -hmm. are there um Mm -hmm. there's a lot um but i think that we hold these horror films so close to our hearts because they're personal stories Shakespeare stories are really broad. They're about class. They are about um, kind of the uh, institutions of the day that we can broadly adapt into what we are living through now, where horror, it hits us in a really personal way. So this has been a very long long winding road <laughs> for me to avoid talking about the movie we came here. <laughs> and folks you can generally for new listeners out there and we've gotten a ton of new listeners uh, over the past few months so thank you for that hope you stick around um you can generally gauge my personal enthusiasm for a movie with like how long it takes for us to get to talk about said movie versus the amount. <laughs> if um, if I ever start a show, so Jerry, what are you watching this week? You know, you're like, oh, Mike's just not a fan of this one. That's my tell. <laughs> Let's start with the director, Samuel Bear. And I know LB in the notes, I, you had put down like, you have some things to say about Samuel Bear, who yeah, um, music video director came to prominence with videos like, um, Nirvana smells like teen spirit, garbage is I own, I'm only happy when it rains, um, blind melons, no rain. Um, so he's responsible for the B-girl for those who <laughs> are still upset about that. Um, but so what were your, what do you have to say about uh, Mr. Bayer? Samuel Bayer is uh, a director that uh, when I was a teenager, I never looked forward to Samuel Bayer having a new music video. Mm-hmm. I, I always thought that he was this, uh, this is ironic, I guess, like uh, he, 
ironic that he was working with Michael Bay because I like I feel like that he is like along the lines of Michael Bay making his music videos <laughs> where it's just like a, a bunch of like really gritty well Michael Bay isn't gritty but like it's a big production and um, there's not much substance to it like other than just you know despite all my rage I'm still a rat in the cage like that kind of thing oh he did pull of his butterflies but um like, anyway uh, so i have this like idea that my uh, that uh samuel bear is this just really corporate like I, I don't know like not not punk rock at all which is what i'm getting to <laughs> it's, it's ironic that he got his start with smells like teen spirit because apparently Nirvana had seen his directing reel at the time and thought that it sucked, like thought that it was terrible. And that's why they wanted him to do Smells Like Teen Spirit because they thought he was going to be really punk rock and not too corporate. And then he goes off to, to become in this, this machine <laughs> of corporate music videos and, and, and working with Platinum Dunes. And, and uh, I just find that very, very ironic. You put it perfect in saying that it's really corporate and that it's like a very transactional nature uh, to like the, his work overall, because this is from Shock to You Drop in 2010. And basically Bear was approached three times, like much like Peter in the garden. Um, he was supposed approached three times, basically, to direct the Nightmare on Elm Street remake by Michael Bay. And twice he turned them down. I'm going to make a wild statement here if you approach someone to adapt your work and they turn it down a couple times they're probably not super enthusiastic about the work and you may yeah. not get their a game just right. a, a while you may want to find someone who actually wants to do the job um so this is is they're talking to shock to your drop uh, in march of 2010 roughly about a month before the Elm Street remake comes out, talking about why he took the project on. Michael sent me an email and it made a lot of sense. Just talking about the business and why this was a good movie to make. There was a lot of opportunities in doing this that might not have happened with another film. I think what he said made a lot of sense. I think it's hard to argue with the richest guy in Hollywood. So this isn't, you know, a guy that's looking like I have this real passion for the project. There's this mm -hmm. real vision that I have for it here. Um, there's just like stuff I can do to like put my own imprint on it and update it for modern times. It's like, no, um, what I'm able to do with this thing is basically parlay it into my next gig. Now, very similar to like Brian Fincher on Alien 3 where that, that was Fincher's first movie. He absolutely despised making this movie. It was not a fun process. There was a lot of studio interference. Unlike David Fincher, like Samuel Bears never made another feature length movie again. Like he didn't follow up with his seven basically after this. He's not, he doesn't have like his version of the game in his resume or Gone Girl or All Dogs Go to Heaven number two, mm. you know, all Fincher classics. Um, Bears just like back to making music videos and, are music videos like still 
Do they have the cultural cachet they did in the 80s and 90s? I would argue no. that they don't, but I'm also old, so no. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, they, they're used as promotional tools, but um, it really is it, it's, it's a totally different game mm-hmm. now, I, you know. Um, I think it depends on how into K-pop you are. <laughs> that's, <Okay>. true. Um, <laughs> that's true. That's <laughs> true. Um, I think that that's where the uh, the music video cachet really comes into uh, question. But, you know, I think we talk so much about a director taking a project on either for the check or the love. Mm-hmm. And we have so many experiences with both, right? We have Rob mm-hmm. Zombie, obviously, holds Halloween synchromount. Like he loves that movie with uh, 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 every fiber of his being, but there are so many people that don't like his remake. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have this where someone that isn't coming at it from a point of, oh, Freddie was everything to me growing up and I really need to like put my stamp on this ip and it's i don't think that you can say one or the other it's truly better i think yeah you're gonna get some possibly more unique ideas out of someone that's coming from a point of love for the game but you know we have we have kind of the other end which is someone that's like no this is a really cool series to me but they can still mess it up mm-hmm. but i think what you can do is maybe make an apt comparison to like freddie versus jason and ronnie Yu as director ronnie Yu also like two times turned down bob shea and sean cunningham and said i don't see myself in this role like i'm just not that interested and bob shea kept like pitching it and pitching it and like come on and finally ronnie Yu said yes and what you did, I think it, in part, I think it's helped because I think Shannon and Swift's script approaches like the characters from a place of like really knowing about them. Um, you was like, well, I don't really know these characters that well. I don't have a great affinity for them. But what if I look at monster movies of yore, like Dracula versus Frankenstein? What can I do? Like, what do what? Maybe I can infuse like some Hong Kong cinema into this. Like, everybody is doing quick style edits right now. What if I let things play out a bit more in the fight? Like, he was bringing things to the table um, in a way that like maybe that outsider perspective was really good. Here you have like an outsider perspective, and what you're seeing in these interviews, there's nothing about like the art of the movie or or you know updating it for modern times. It's like we had a business meeting and then I have these other things. So it's, and look, I understand it's a job. Um, And I'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about Rooney Mara in a moment. Um, But like at the end of the day, like it's, we, I know sometimes we go to like these conventions or like uh, repertoire screenings of a movie and like the cast is present and you'll get this really esoteric question from a fan. And the response is like, I did this 40 years ago. I don't know. Like I just, and that's fair. Like I don't remember things I did like two months ago, let alone 40 years ago. Right. So I thought, I I think when it comes to this, like bears perspective 
didn't help things. So the other Mm-mm. fault, I the real big flaw of this movie, and she's gone on to have like you know become like really one of Fincher's stable of players at this point, like Rooney Mara in her first real starring role, playing uh, Nancy, the role of Nancy, you know, a, a character so wonderfully brought to life by Heather Langenkamp in the original series, and there's this, and I don't think the script does it a lot of favors and I don't think the kind of tone they're trying to set, which is so dour, brings it a lot of favors. But a year after the movie comes out, this is Rooney Mara and playing Nancy. You kind of learn to self-sabotage with a thing you don't want to get. Sometimes you don't want to get something, but you do a really good job and you get in anyway. That's kind of what happened with The Nightmare on Elm Street. I didn't even really want it. And then I went into the edition. I was like, fuck, I definitely got that. Now, <laughs> there's a lot going on in that statement. Yeah. Um, some of it is kind of like, look how talented I am that I didn't even try and I got it. <laughs> like, it's a bit cringy. Um, and it's, a, it's set a year after this movie comes out and it's pretty much ripped to shreds by critics and fans alike. So I don't really falter for distancing herself but horror fans took a lot of issue with this statement and they're really mad they really did not like it like they got very mad online about this statement so i was reading some of the articles it appeared in um and i would say again like as a fan sometimes we and i'm guilty of this i invest way more into the work the performer's doing than the performer actually does like it's a job to them at the end of the day mm-hmm. they do their, their lines you know, it's not, I'm really excited. I got the role of Nancy because she's such an iconic character. It's like, you know, I'm going to get my big break in a movie that's going to come on 2000 screens and then I'm going to move on to bigger and better things. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I for one am shocked that a rich, white, privileged girl would have such a take on work. I it blows my mind Mm -hmm. by that I mean it doesn't at all Um, (laughs) I like Rooney Mara is a weird actor to me because there are times that I absolutely love her I always go back we talk about Fincher that opening scene of the social network Mm -hmm. where she's with Zuckerberg and she's like cutting him down bit by bit her timing is exquisite in that and she's relishing in that performance um I think she's a good actor I think this is just not the Nancy that Heather Langenkamp was given um this is a different Nancy Nancy is not our main character really here I would say that it goes from Chris to um, Quentin. Um, we're more invested in those characters. Nancy's mm-hmm. kind of a vessel of the story. Um, but it's really Chris and Quentin that we're like, we care about them. We want to know what's happening with them. Their, their arcs where we care. Nancy is kind of like, okay, you're there interesting i haven't thought of it as like nancy not being the lead 
I've thought of it as like I really wish Chris had stayed at the lead as this movie. And if the if the movie kind of pulled, and then you're almost conditioned to think that she is the way because it follows mm-hmm. Kate Cassidy around for so long. Like in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, you have Tina who Amanda Weiss is only on screen for maybe like 15 minutes uh, before she's killed off. But I think like she's given a lot in that 15 minutes. One of the one of the things I wish this movie had more of is I wish it had developed the relationship between Nancy and Chris and Quentin and Dean mm-hmm. and Jesse a bit more. You never really get to see them interact as friends. And even though the original Elm Street, you only see Rod and uh, Tina and Nancy together and Glenn together for like all together for a couple of scenes, you get this really wonderful sense of their, the dynamic of their friendship overall. Mm -hmm. And you get a sense of like, when one of them is removed, what that loss really is at that point Mm -hmm. here, like there's like the camaraderie is missing and everything is so dour. Everything is so, I mean, like you couldn't pick a more, apt t-shirt for Quentin to wear than that Joy Division shirt, man. <laughs> it's, it's just sad times at Ridgemont High for this movie, man. It's just not, you know, and I think that's a, a, a mark of this period of horror. I think like the mid to late 90s, like it's the Dark Knight Returns of horror movies. Like it's the grim <laughs> and gritty era. Like Frank Miller is writing every single, rewriting every <laughs> script with how dark they are. But that's my take. I think it suffers from uh, assuming that you're you're going to know what it is going in. Like it doesn't have those those character development moments because it thinks that like oh everybody's just going to know what this is already, and it, it really suffers from that. That is think, perfect. Yeah, and I think the problems with the movie start from the script. It, it feels like okay, we're going to. Uh, cover this property that has this title on it. Um, and we know that because it's going to have this title on it, then because, hey, Freddy's an icon, we're going we're gonna to make a lot of money on this. But it doesn't seem to care to take the time to um, really make anyone that interesting <laughs> uh, or memorable to me. Um, and when, and I, I imagine as an actor, getting a script where the dialogue is just sort of clunky, the there just doesn't seem to be a lot of there there um, that they're like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? You know? Yeah. Um, and I, I, that's, that's kind of what my biggest sense of the downfall from this, of this movie seemed to come right from the very beginning. Michael Bay is saying, Hey, we're going to make money off this movie, write a script for us, whoever. I don't even know who wrote the script. Uh, if I'm being honest. And it's just, that I think is where where the problem is. I mean, there's nothing to build on. There's nothing to create this world out of um, because there's just nothing on the page. But I I don't understand the relationships between the friends aren't mm-hmm. going to be the same relationships that we see in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. No. Their history has been fucked with we that's not part of the original mm-hmm. story they don't have this trauma that these people have gone in and mm-hmm. extracted from their brains so that they're not even for sure when they fucking met um 
And so, yeah, their relationship is going to seem odd. It's going to seem stilted because they don't have that touch point mm-hmm. of uh, they, they haven't built all of that foundation that the original um, group did. But even even given that, I think that like, and we started the conversation tonight, like we touched on the original Friday the 13th series and none of the characters in those movies are like incredibly deep characters overall, right? Like you're not exactly getting, you know, Aaron Sorkin kind of writing Friday the 13th character, you know, but I'm going to steal a line from Jerry, who's not, he was here tonight in spirit right now when I say this. If you take Jason Voorhees out of Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter, you still have like a really good teen coming of age movie. Like you would follow Teddy around. You would follow the twins around. You would follow Scotty around. You would follow those kids around, right? And you would want to watch what they get up to. Um, And I'm not giving a ton on those characters. I'm not spending a lot of time on each one, but I'd like them. You know, I, you know, would watch that movie at a time where like, man, I would want to be like them overall. Like those are the teens I would look up to. And what I'm not given in this movie, like it does, you're right, Nicole, it doesn't have to be like the same one-to-one dynamic of the Wes Craven movie because of the changes the story makes, but like, give me something, give me some reason. And I would say like Thomas Decker and Kate Cassidy, the best they can with what they're given. And you get a little bit of a feel for like, Yes, they were a formerly partnered couple. Now they long, no longer are, but there's still some care between them overall. Um, and I think like Kyle, uh, Kyle Gallner um, does the absolute best he can with what he's given as Quentin. And I, Kate Cassidy, I think does a phenomenal, really wish she was in more of the movie as Kristen. Um, they do the best they can with what they're given, but when you're given so little, it's just really hard to invest. I agree. And I think that one of the things that makes both Kate Cassidy's and uh, Tom Secker's performances a little bit meatier is that those are also the characters that piece the shit together mm-hmm. first. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, wait, something's not adding up. Why am I mm-hmm. in this picture? Hey, I've been having these dreams. Hey, what's going on? they're able to start piecing together the world that we are in. Um, Nancy is kind of the the last person to hop on that train Mm -hmm. because she's kind of living in oblivion. Uh, Her mom has done a bang up job, uh, stands the vodka support of our original Nightmare on Elm Street mom of keeping Nancy out of uh, kind of the know of the situation. And she is earnestly kind of the last person to kind of buy into what's happening. And so I think that's why um, those two particular characters at the beginning are so interesting and bring us in. And we want to see more of them because, yeah, they get more of the world. They understand what's happening to them. Do you think that Nancy is um, characterized in that way in which she is kind of, the, like you said, the last on the train um, to juxtapose the fact that she's the one who is most important to this Freddy Krueger? Sure. I mean, I think 
as much as I hate to say it, there maybe it's she experienced, you know, additional trauma. We don't know what other photos there may be, but it, I, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, but we get that bit at the end where um, Quentin discovers the photos and they're all of Nancy and he calls Nancy the favorite. So I think that, yeah, there's probably a little additional conditioning there to be like, you may have gotten the, the most attention from this awful person and we really need to work to eradicate it um so i i can see that being part of it um but again to me i i always have approached this as nancy's not the most important character she's not the nancy from the originals she's kind of a vessel of a segment of the story we're really more honed in on Quentin and Chris and kind of the other people that she um, tangentially interacts with like those are the that's how the world is created is through them not through her I you know what I think that's really I like that approach on it I really do appreciate that like you have Nancy in the movie because of the lore of the franchise and it's expected um but she's more on the periphery. And I think what the movie does is it takes away a lot of her agency. I mean, I think back to the original series and you think of the line, like, I'm into survival. Like, what sets Nancy, like, doing this franchise, this is always my favorite franchise, but, like, I think, like, I could, I would argue that up until Halloween H2O and now the new Halloween, the strongest final girl two final girls really in any horror movies were like Nancy Tompkins and Alice in Friday the third um, nightmare on Elm street four and five um, because they take the fight to Freddie. They're not just reacting. They're actually acting out. Like you have uh, Nancy, like basically um, giving uh, uh, director Chris Columbus ideas for the home alone movies at the end of the nightmare on Elm street <laughs> movie. Right. Um, the only other so, one I would add to that would be like Ginny from Friday too. Absolutely. Where, where yeah. she actually, you know, she's, she, she uses her mind and she's like, Oh, Oh my gosh, I'm going to mm-hmm. try and fool Jason. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm trapped. I, there's nowhere I can right. go. I'm going to see if I can get my way out of this. But now like that aspect of her character, which really is like an essential aspect of that character has kind of been removed from it. But what they still do is all the iconic, the iconic, all the iconography of the, first movie is still given to Nancy. Like you have Freddie coming through the wall. You have, you know, we'll get into that a little bit when we talk about, um, cause I wanted to ask Nicole about something she had said earlier, but I think like a lot of the things we associate with Nancy that aren't necessarily about her character, um, but things that happen to her are like still given to her in this movie. Nicole, you had mentioned like early on, like one of the things that you really love about this movie is like, um, some of the things that it tries to do differently from Wes Craven's original. I think maybe it's a good time to talk mm-hmm. about some of those things. And I'm going to like cede the floor to you right now because I, I'm interested in hearing that. Well, first and foremost, I think you start with Freddie, and this is not a Freddie you like. This is not a Freddie you are on board with. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, 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 love the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. But one of the issues is always the fact that 
we're rooting for a child killer. We're like, hey, he's chill. Um, <laughs> he cracks jokes. This is good times. No, he he's gross. He's bad. And this film says absolutely. And there's nothing redeemable about him. And I love the element that they add in, which is like, what is the truth? Because the parents have really come in and fucked with their kids' memories and are essentially gaslighting them along the way, being like, nope, it's not happening. This isn't real. Um, and yet you have this, it toys with you in terms of, well, we we're never really given the opportunity to think that he's innocent because we're kind of given every road sign that he's not. And I really find that compelling. And I find it compelling that we have a Freddy that's not just attacking essentially the siblings of the kids that he killed and the par- the kids of the parents that came for him but he's attacking the kids that hurt him and that's right. it it's, it's not sins of the father this time it's it's from what he believes the sins of the, the actual children yes look jackie o'haley is a fantastic actor and he has mm-hmm. a herculean task ahead of him here because mm-hmm. i don't outside of maybe boris karloff as frankenstein's monster I don't know if there is a monster character that is as closely identified with the person who plays them as as Freddy Krueger is with Robert Englund. And that is a really hard thing to do. Um, I'm trying to think, like, you probably have had, like, seven or eight people play Jason Voorhees. Sometimes you have Mm. two people play him within the same movie. Um, There's a number of different people that have played the shape. Uh, obviously like Doug Bradley is pinhead but might, might be the only other one that jumps to mind in terms of modern horror but even then like the Hellraiser franchise the highs and lows of that series are so the, so vast that it's not like Elm Street which I think has a number of like true masterpieces so to be given like given this iconic role it's going to be really hard to fill and I do appreciate that Jackie O'Haley doesn't just do a Robert England impression. Even mm-hmm. the physicality, like he is a small man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I, and I, I apologize because this is not something that I've come up with and I can't credit the source, so I apologize. The juxtaposition of, of him in the flashback sequences when he is, you know, obviously much larger than the kids and he's picking them up and he's spinning them around and he's like interacting with them but then in the dream world now when they're grown, he's so much smaller than everybody in this movie, yet mm-hmm. he's still able to like forcibly intimidate them and terrify them uh, and, 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 and scar them in such ways despite his smaller stature. I love that because I mean, he has the ultimate power. We don't have to add size and bulk to that i mean he's mm-hmm. in their minds we don't we don't need to mess with bringing in um a wrestler to 
give Freddie that bodily advantage. Um, and it's a, 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 casting Jackie Earl Haley, obviously, I think you're playing on a specific element that I think he does really well, which is creepy every man. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I, again, I really, those scenes of him with the kids at the preschool when we, you know, we zoom into that photo that Nancy discovers and we're taken back to that preschool. It's creepy. He's creepy and disturbing and not in an over the top way, in a real way, in a way that I think is tangible for us to wrap our minds around. And again, you know, going back to Craven's original film, you know, the sexual abuse was something that had, I think, initially been inserted into the script, but because of that case, the satanic panic, and um, they excised that because it wasn't something that could be danced around in, I think, a thoughtful way. And I'm glad that they did that. But this, they're like, no, he's just bad. Everything that you hate, he's got it in spades. Mm-hmm. Let's so talk about that. Freddie in the. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I, I'm, I'm sorry, say, Brian. Go ahead. I, I do think Freddie is as he appears in Wes Craven's two films, really is that disgusting, repellent character still. And this is um, maybe trying to reach back to that, which I think is good. Um, you know. And also just making it that much worse by not soft pedaling the molestation aspect of it, um, because um, that's horrifying stuff, right? And and um, so I, I just I just wanted to just expand on what you were saying. Mm-hmm. To say I think that Wes Craven really did intend for Freddie to be that repellent character and i think in the original and in new nightmare he really and I, that. I think you could say like jackie o'haley in this one he's kind of channeling the portrayal of freddy krueger in, in freddy's revenge where yes there are a couple yeah. one-liners there but they're not meant yeah. to make you laugh they're there to really mm-hmm. uh add to the grotesqueness of the situation and yeah. the, the freddy krueger in freddy's revenge is like probably the most menacing of the portrayals in the original series overall. Like it's definitely an aberration and it's obviously far removed from what you see in part five and, you know, Freddie's dead when it's like, I'll get you my little pretty. Like that's like, you know, (laughs) and your little soul too, which there's room for that. Um, But you, Nicole, you had mentioned satanic panic and I know LB, I know you had a lot to what we wanted to add to this as well. So I'm definitely interested in hearing about how that kind of like ties into uh, this film. Yeah, it's it's a subtle reference, I think, to uh, the Macmillan preschool. You know, these kids were in the same preschool and and I, I'm not. It's been an exhausting couple days, it's okay. (laughs) No, it's okay. I mean, I, I really just wanted that to be brought up. Like, I don't know if I, mm-hmm. I have a lot 
personally to say about it but like i i just think it's worth mentioning mm-hmm. um i it's pretty obvious even though it is subtle mm-hmm. um but uh, i i think maybe nicole should talk about it Okay. Well, I do. I think that this movie, if it, 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 it walks right up to the edge of doing something that would have really, if this were to become like a new franchise and Haley was contracted for two sequels, could have really set this series on its ear and done something completely, I think, enthralling with it. Like, what if Freddy Krueger was innocent? And it feels like that. Mm-hmm. I have never read the, the original version of this script. So I, I, this is complete like hearsay right now but it feels like that's the intent because the way that jackie or haley portrays freddie in this there's this real mm. righteous anger into him it's not mm. just like it's not just that he wants to like fuck with these kids or murder these children there's this anger there's this sense of like i am out for vengeance in this movie because look what you did to me um mm. not only your actions led to me being killed but you also sullied my name at that point because i i watch those flashbacks and the initial ones at least like the one when he's like sitting with nancy and she's like in her art room and when he's like interacting with the children as a group and there's almost like a sweetness to those scenes that obviously takes a much darker tone as the flashbacks mm-hmm. continue uh and more information is revealed but if you didn't walk right up to that ledge and then decide the last minute no, we really, we have to like not, because at that point now the children become monsters at that point. Right. And I thought like what, what my mind jumped to rewatching this again was capturing the Freedmans, the 2003 mm-hmm. documentary about Ar- Arnold Freeman, who was investigated for possessing child pornography magazines. And as the police are interviewing the children that would come to his home for their computer classes, stories about molestation uh, and sexual abuse towards young boys started to emerge. And the question the documentary posits was, did this actually happen, you know, or were these story, were the investigators looking for a narrative at that point? And they were looking to pin anything on him. Um, And Friedman and then later his son were both arrested and, imprisoned for this and there's a question of like yes they were to be quite honest they were weirdos but were they guilty of this um i wish the film and i wish bear and i wish platinum dunes had the courage to lean all the way into that Mm. and i think that's when they didn't do that i think that's what i'm like i'm out on this movie i really think that that's what like you're walking right up to that edge and then you're like nope that's i think what i pulled out that's what I. That... Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I, uh, go ahead. That's fine. I was just gonna say, like, why does it have to be righteous anger? I mean, he was killed by the parents. I mean, yeah. I, I would be mad. Um, <laughs> so, regardless of the sins that I committed to put myself in that position, um, like. It, it doesn't have to be like I'm innocent and I've been betrayed. It, no, he was just killed. He did a horrible thing. The parents, instead of, um, you know, I think we get uh, one of the, I will say that this element of the film is one that I really take the most umbrage with because this is where I miss 
the John Saxton character. This is where I miss Nancy's dad as a police officer and getting that buy-in, getting that element brought in because then it becomes a little bit more, um, uh, I guess, developed and it becomes mm-hmm. a little more involved. And so that the whole flashback where we have Quentin go to the the place where they kill Freddy uh, or Fred. I don't think they actually ever call him Freddy. Um, they, uh, I, I kind of miss that that element of it because that was a really dynamic piece. I mean, John Saxton, John Saxton, and Legend, but um, I, I did miss that piece because it just seemed like vigilante justice to what end. Um, how is that covered up to where if you have someone that's on the police force as part of that, that kind mm-hmm. of threads that needle. Right. Yeah. I think too, like the justification for doing it in this movie was much weaker. Like in the first movie you have, um, you know, Marge Thompson tell Nancy, like the judges got fat, uh, the lawyers got fat mm-hmm. uh, and the judge got famous, but he was let off in a technicality and the parents mm-hmm. were never going to have um they were never going to have that. The justice. Exactly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. They were looking mm-hmm. for. And I think that in the original script, what's excised from it is like Marge Thompson is the one that actually kills Freddie. Like she deals the death blow. And it's revealed that like Nancy actually had a sibling that was killed by Freddie. Um, and that adds like so much more pathos and so much more into like the, de- into the development of the relationship between Nancy and Freddie. What I don't like about this is like you have this mob justice here. They decide not to go to the cops. He goes like, we're going to put our kids in the stand to talk about mm-hmm. this. It's like that's not a reason to to not do that. To not do that. And also <laughs> yeah. that's not how that would work in that case. Like you don't typically mm-hmm. put a child victim like that on a stake. And we could go a whole show about how <laughs> these things are handled and how there are a lot of struggling with this right now and I apologize because this is something I've had to deal with in my professional life is that like when there's someone who a young person who's a victim of this like there are so many precautions that are made to be as sensitive as possible to the needs of that child and to do as minimal damage as you can and to not litigate them and it just seems like that because this is such an and I know like I'm harping in a little detail but it's such an important detail in terms of the scope of the story and why things are happening then you need to do your fucking research when you write the script for like that can't be glossed over to make a little throwaway line and I really hate that Connie Britton's character is like they make her into the voice of reason during the scene like no no we can't do this go to the cops and she's just like trying to convince them not like no like mm go all in. And Nicole, you would ask like, well, why does it have to be righteous anger? Well, I think that if Freddie is innocent, I think then there is righteous anger. Like you could have this person who was like not guilty of the things that he was accused of doing, that these stories were made up about him. And because of that, he returns as this vengeful dream demon at that point. That to me is like a fascinating look. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something like, and obviously like when we see this in our country now when persons of color are the victims of police brutality and police violence. Mm-hmm. There's a righteous anger when these people are killed as there should be. Um, 
And I did not think I would be equating like the Black Lives Matter movement with <laughs> the Nightmare on Elm Street 2010 movie tonight. And I, you know, in such an ineloquent way, but I think that's where the the tone and the portrayal of of Jackie Earl Haley's Freddy to me, like when you when Robert Englund is playing Freddy, he's just like, I just like to fuck with kids. Like at the end of the day, like that's my thing. That's what I like to do. And I didn't get that from the, and that's that's and it's fine that I didn't get that from this portrayal of Freddy Krueger. Like that's totally okay that it's a different portrayal and that it looks different. But when you're leaning into this, where it's so heavily leaning in one direction, and then to kind of pull it out at the last moment, and it feels like it was pulled out of the cowardice, to be quite honest. Um, mm -hmm. That's where I'm like, eh. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's where I'm coming from. No, it makes sense. It's a total bait and switch. Mm -hmm. yeah. so. Have you guys heard about uh, John Saxon's um, treatment for uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street prequel? In which Freddy, with, yeah, yeah I, I don't know a lot about it, but um, uh, Jason Jenks, Jenkins, uh, Jenks, he has a column at Bloody Disgusting called Phantom Limbs, and uh, I think it was this last week, um, or maybe the week before, he, there's an article about John Saxon's treatment, and in it, um, Freddie is innocent, yeah. and um, <laughs> the murders were actually committed by the Manson family, which is a little weird. But uh, <laughs> but but the whole innocence thing, um, I think, was you know has been around mm -hmm. sort of the lore of this series for a long time, um, and so I think maybe I don't know if that played into the writing. Trying to think of the Manson family tooling around Springwood, Ohio. I know, yeah, I know. not quite. Yeah. Well, in, not in, quite in, there. I would, I would argue that um, the idea of it being set in Ohio doesn't come up until much later in the series. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like four or five, that it's even mm -hmm. brought up as being in Ohio, because the first movie clearly takes place in LA. Yes. <laughs> uh, I All think the palm trees in Ohio. I think the innocence thing, though, is interesting. Yeah, I would love a story where Freddie is innocent and um, we go down that path. But this is a film that I don't think ever had an interest in that because we are presented very early on with Chris with that dress where we see the marks, we then get that flashback of Freddie mm -hmm. with the, the garden tool where it's that same mark. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think this was a film that was really interested in, I, I think it toys with it in the way that we've talked about it, which is, you know, kind of the unreliable narrator perspective which is what are these kids remembering mm -hmm. because their memories have been so messed with so altered what is real okay. um but i think that this film really doubles down on no freddie's freddie's never innocent there's never but, an inkling of that yeah for us i just i <laughs> I just think you're like looking at altered memories from a different perspective. If you go down that route that the slashes and the dresses at that point become like, you're telling a child, if you tell a child over and over again, just like there's been like documentaries about persons that are innocent of crimes that end up confessing to them. 
and really believe they're guilty because they're told over and over, like, you did this, 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 confess. That would be, now do that with adults. Now do it with like a five-year-old girl, you know, mm-hmm. a girl mm-hmm. boy and say like, this happened to you. No, it did. Why are you lying? Why are you protecting them? Just, you know, like eventually you're going to think like, this happened to me. So you're just taking that idea of like an altered memory and just doing something different with it at that point. I don't know. Like that's, that's my take on it. Yeah, I think no. So. I I would love to see that take. <laughs> I would love to see kind of these different ideas out there, but I think that this movie is really simple in that we we want to put it out there that uh because these kids have undergone this thing where they're conditioned to forget what happened to them, we can never really be sure. But we, as the viewers, are given every single breadcrumb to know this is true. This is what happened because we see the dress. We see these flashbacks and they're not presented in a way that we're questioning them. We're, they're not presented in a way where it's like, well, how are, is, is this, are they remembering something else? How is this skewed? it's not presented in that way. It's presented as very straightforward. I, I, I gotta be honest. I think this might be the thing I disagree with the most on anything in any show we've ever done. Like, I'm not, like, I really think the way that the it's presented is like, it's very much as asking you to question whether or not like he's guilty or innocent. Mm-hmm. Like they really are asking you to question that. Like, I don't think it's, I just don't see that straightforwardness at all in this movie. I really do think that they are, not only like ask you to question it, but are like really leading you down a road that like that's where they're going to travel. I think that there's an important thing to note too is it seems as though the parents really don't care whether or not he's innocent. Mm. Like they're going after him regardless. And part of the reason I think that is because it seems as though they didn't even attempt to, to, um, you know, investigate the the warehouse or, or whatever that building is. They didn't try to find Freddy's cave or, you know, mm-hmm. is that what they call it? The cave. Yeah. Um, because all of the evidence is still inside there. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the pictures of Nancy and, and all the, all those things, they're still there. And that's how we learn. Yeah. But it seems as though the parents didn't even make an effort to, right. they just assumed yeah. And uh, I mean, they were correct, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but like, it's, it's a dangerous assumption. I mean, they find like Nancy and Quentin find one of the finger knives, like just lying mm-hmm. on a table, like 15 years later. And you're right. Like Quentin asks, did you ever find the cave? And dad's like, no. And they, they Quentin and Nancy find it literally in five minutes. Like mm-hmm. it's not, it's really, it's not even hiding in plain sight. It's not even hiding really. I mean, I do think that that, to that point, I do think that the film would benefit from more of an idea of what pushes the parents. What, um, because if they're not finding this cave, if they're not finding these elements of evidence, um, what is the indication that this is what they need to do? Um, 
you know, again, I think in the original film, it's very clearly laid out. The evidence was there. Someone just missigned um, the the paperwork to get the job done, to get him locked up. And here, I, I think to what both you and uh, LB have said is that it's that's kind of patchworked together and there are some big gaps. And I, yeah, I absolutely, I think that is to the detriment of the overall story. But I, to me, I guess, it, it, just in my viewing, I, it, and I think back to seeing it in the theater when it came out, I never really thought that he was innocent. I just, that, that was never a thing that crossed my mind. Even that scene where you have Clancy Brown and Rooney Mara and um, Kyle all together and they're kind of piecing together what happened in the past. I never really, even then I was like, these kids have just been messed with so much by their parents that mm-hmm. they don't understand um, kind of what the reality of the situation is. And so I just, I never really bought that he was innocent from the get-go. And so maybe that's part of why it's hard for me to go down that line of thinking, mm-hmm. which I think you're, you're right. It's just, it's hard for me to kind of connect to that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I do think it's fair too. Like, I like the idea that you've said of this being such an unlikable character from the get go that they really strip away the pomp of the character and, like, the kind of like this Freddy Krueger's not going to appear in any lunchboxes. <laughs> right. And I really do think that that's like they really recreate him as a villain. I think that that what you said to start is like a really like the problem with this movie is not Jackie Earl Haley. All right. Um, what is the, the other thing that gets talked about a lot with this movie is the idea of these micro naps and how they kind of allow the viewer to weave in and out of like dream sequences. And I can go either way on these. And I'm wondering what uh, your folks' view on like this kind of as a, a, a creative tool is. Well, I think they happen in the original film too, mm-hmm. um, because you know Nancy falls asleep in class. I mean, she just she just is all of a sudden there. She's all of a sudden in the dream world. There's no, and it's more subtle in how we get there, in indicating that we're there now. Um, but you know, I, I guess, I guess the fact that you know I, I know that uh, Craven doesn't use them as a device. He, it's just sort of part of the way the story works. Um, so I guess I didn't think about it in, in a way that was negative. Mm-hmm. I think it's a one one thing that can work. I like how it can slip in and out. I wish they did a little bit more in terms of like, it's like you said, Brian, it's very obvious when they're in the dream world in this one, mm-hmm. but it's kind of, I think when it's done well, and I think the pharmacy sequence in particular, yeah, um, it's actually a pretty cool tool. Yeah, there's that the sudden everything, you know, sort of starts turning green and red mm-hmm. inside the building. And we, because we're familiar with the series, mm-hmm. are cued into the fact that, oh, like, or in the pool even, you know, the uh, the sort of the lanes are, are set off by these green and red. Same uh, in the diner, too. In the opening yeah. scene of the diner, the red and green lighting. I think that's, yeah. that's a clever touch. Like, I, that, yeah. those are the little things I do appreciate about this. 
Yeah, and, and the, we see that kind of stuff in some of the other chapters in the series, but uh, here it was, you know, it, it's done in a, in a pretty clever way, and I, I definitely mm-hmm. points for that. And I, I guess for me, the, it, it works. That device works for this particular iteration of the movie. Mm-hmm. I love the Micronap uh, addition to it, and I love the... Um, the idea that it it twists reality and dreams you're in and out and it you have these moments where it's hard to where and I think back to the library scene with Quentin where the only indication that we really have that we're starting that micro nap is the warping of the bookshelves Mm -hmm. um I love that because as someone that experiences night terrors it's always how it starts. Um, it's we have something that's really real to us, something that we, you know, the place that I went to today, um, I'm seeing it in my dream, but there's something just so slightly mm-hmm. off about it. And mm-hmm. I love that they infuse that into the micronaps. I just wish that that would actually be more imbued into the full dream sequences because that's what's horrifying about dreams is that it's these really real people in these real places that get contorted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do wish they did a little more because this is one series. This, this film is obviously is most in this era are and were it's very reliant on CGI but I think you can make a real argument that if there's one series that could really benefit from CGI, it would be a nightmare in Elm street because you can pretty much like, because it's the, the, the dream world, it doesn't, it can be tethered to reality, but it can drift away from it. And I, I, to the film's detriment. And I know I say that a lot tonight and I'm trying not to be mm-hmm. super negative and it hurts. It really hurts. Um, but like it keeps going back to the boiler room. And there are so many other things we could be doing, but like we keep coming back to this boiler room because it feels like that's what's expected of us. You know, Um, the things that's strange about going to the boiler room in this film is that is not where the crimes occurred. Right. Original. I mean, the crimes occurred in the boiler room. Mm -hmm. That's why we're there. Now Mm -hmm. it just seems like, oh, there's boiler rooms in Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. So we're going (laughs) to. put them in here too because they're creepy and they are you know Um, and i think some of the effects that they use with the boiler rooms are pretty cool i mean Mm -hmm. where where he's all of a sudden just sort of drifts into this Mm -hmm. world you know and the and you know walls turn into pipes and stuff like that i Mm -hmm. thought it was pretty cool but um but i am a little bit wondering you know why are we is there a reason really to use the boiler room and And i I see it we have to use the boiler room because as we learn, Jason is afraid of water. Freddie is afraid of fire. How do we use it? And um. so, yeah, I mean, I, I have the same, like, I love Thomas Decker's scene in the boiler room. I think that's a really effective kill. Um, and it, I, I think it's really kind of a, a brilliant marriage of this, disgusting Freddy and kind of the whimsical Freddy of Robert England, which is like, yeah, I'm cruel, I'm gross, I'm nasty, but I got some jokes and <laughs> I got, you know, I'm, I'm just going to play around a little bit. And 
it's really effective. But yeah, I, I thought that too. Um, when I was watching it last night, I'm like, is, is the boiler room a thing in this world? <laughs> Don't think so. The last thing I wanted to discuss, and I think this is um, tied into like you had said, Nicole, about things you appreciate about the movie. One of the, is how it separates itself from the original. And there are a lot of callbacks to the original series in this movie, specifically when it comes to Nancy, you have like Freddie coming through the wall. You have a bathtub scene. You have Tina in the body bag and Nancy following her. You have um, Connie Britton's death at the end of the movie getting pulled in through the mirror. Um, you also recreate, you recreate Tina's death in this movie as well. And I wonder, even the character names, you have Nancy from part one, you have Jesse as a character name from part two and Chris being short for Kristen in part three. It seems like it relies a lot on being familiar with the original series and saying like, did you like this in 1984 or what do you think about it now? How well do those callbacks work for everybody here? I'm gonna go last. How's this for a wet dream is going there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I thought, oh man. <laughs> one, of, one of Freddy's worst one-liners mm -hmm. is included in this, but oh well. Um, some of those things I think work. Um, some of them that are, the, the bathtub scene I think works okay. Um, I think Freddy coming through the wall is tough because yeah. that image uh, in the original is so simple and, you know, costs five cents to do. Yeah. And, 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 and just, it's, it's such an iconic, iconic image. And then um, the way it's done in this, it, it's just sort of, I, I don't know, you can, you can, it looks so fake to me. I mean, it, it, the, the CGI just does not look good in that sequence to me at yeah. all. And, and it's just too much. It, it's, it's knowing when to stop and, and it just doesn't know when to stop um, for that particular sequence. Um, yeah. But some of the others I think work fine. Uh, I like the Tina in the body bag. I think, you know, that image will always be effective. Because the idea of an animated person, you know, someone who has their eyes open and, you know, mm -hmm. and is moving and talking inside a body bag is pretty terrifying yeah. to me. Um, and I think it works and it's done effectively in this. I don't think the mom's death is done. Very no. And the, the ones, the, what's funny now that I'm saying this out loud, it seems like the ones that rely heavily on CGI are the ones that don't work. Yeah. Whereas well, the ones that, rely on the simplicity of you know just a person in a body yeah. or um the bathtub the, the mom's the mom's death in particular and i know like Mar the original ending of elm street when she gets sucked in through the window like it is not you know like we when we talk about the best effects work in 80s horror like that scene is it's not brought up for a reason, um, but there's something tangible about it. So we can forgive it. Um, I'm trying to think of a way to say this and not sound like a complete asshole and shit on someone's work, but it feels like we sometimes say we'll fix this in post. And then the person who was supposed to fix it in post died. And then they never <laughs> hired a person to come back and fix it. And platinum dune said, we got a date to hit. So this is going up. Like it's inexcusable that CGI that bad would go in a movie that's going to be on 3,000 screens and it's supposed to kick off a franchise. I don't know. I always hated the body bag scene 
from the first film because even at a young age and watching that i'm like who the fuck is gonna follow a body back like who no nothing good comes from that you stop you stop you reevaluate you mm-hmm. go the other way i think that one of the scenes that always that in the remake stands out to me as kind of being a carbon copy of the first film is obviously chris's death one of the things that i realized in watching it last night is that it lacks something mm-hmm. it so quick it's very brutal but it lacks something when we see tina struggling we're there with her our heart is breaking for her because she's dying and we like her um we care about her and we like chris but it's just so quick Mm -hmm. we're not given the full um we're not given the full treatment of how Freddie really gets in to Tina's world in that. And, you know, you just see Chris go outside, you see the dog. Um, and then it's, she's basically uh, done with in the next couple of minutes. Right. And I, I wanted more. I think that when it comes to how this film took, the iconic scenes, visuals, moments from the original, I just feel like one thing that I would love more, and I think the thing that would make me put this at even a higher value would be like, put the meat behind it, put the Mm -hmm. teeth to it, because that's what made it really stick before. I'm going to say the dreaded term fan service because there isn't that meat behind these scenes in this particular film. It it feels like they're just, you know, uh, shoehorning in these things that um, are supposed to appeal to people to make them like it more. And it just really doesn't work for me at all. Like mm-hmm. I, I honestly wish that they would have just done away with all of that. Yeah. Like it, 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 like it, it doesn't work for me. Like it doesn't add anything to the movie in my opinion. And they could just be gone. And uh, yeah. like, I would much rather see things done completely differently. Or if, um, if there were callbacks to do them like in a, in a way uh, where they're turned on their heads, you know, just something new and inventive to to bring new life in and this one just doesn't do that for me it it almost it it makes it it makes me question whether the producers are are asking the question who is our audience is it for persons that grew up with the series or is it are we trying to develop like a new generation of fans at Mm -hmm. that point because i you're right whenever there are these like there could be subtle callbacks to things we love and it can work and, and that can be great. Little Easter eggs are fine. I like mm-hmm. in Halloween 2018, the kids are running around in silver sham- shamrock masks. <laughs> like that's okay for me. That's cute. Um, mm-hmm. But whenever I'm asked to compare Samuel Bear and Wes Craven as filmmakers, <laughs> Samuel Bear is going to come up short and that's not to, you know, it, not to knock Samuel Bear, but it is like he's not Wes Craven. Um, and the inventiveness that went into creating 
a nightmare in Elm Street and what the thought mm-hmm. that went into like, how do we make Tina's death work? And like, we're going to build a room that we can spin around and balance on one fucking finger. You know, <laughs> what goes into that is so much more different than like, I'm going to press a bunch of keystrokes on my keyboard and this is what's going to happen right now. Um, to your point, Nicole, on like on, on Kristen's death, what separates her from Tina's death is you saw it in the original movie from two perspectives. You mm-hmm. see Tina in the dream world and Tina in the bedroom and Rod looking yeah. on in horror. In this one, it all takes place in that same space. Like there's no differentiation and everything leading up to it is actually pretty good because it goes on for so long. Yeah. When Freddie's eventually like in bed doing his kind of like Burt Reynolds pose, like in, in bed, which is like sexy Freddy. Um, <laughs> up to that point, like it's really good. But then it's just like, oh, I've seen this before. No, and that's I that's a brilliant observation, I think. In I am terms- very I I I'm sorry to interrupt, but one thing is I am very smart. Sorry. I think <laughs> no, I think that's a really, really nuanced and, and brilliant take, which is Jesse is asleep the whole fucking time. Mm-hmm. He never wakes up really to see the to see what's happening and mm-hmm. that's what makes again that's what gives that scene in the original the teeth mm-hmm. which is rod being like <gasps> reacting to it and being mm-hmm. horrified and then dealing with the fact that oh well how am i gonna yeah. like what what do i do now instead we have someone that's asleep the whole time and then wakes up and is like well bye yep. um so i no i think that's a really really good good kind of take on what um kind of knocks that scene down and Mm -hmm. i think you know i think one of the things that we can i'm i'm getting from everyone is that the scenes where they really try to give that fan service or they try to interject those bits for those of us that grew up with the original they kind of fall short But where they relish in creativity, like um, Jesse's death, which is obviously a lot different from Rod's, Mm -hmm. that's good. That is very good. And I love the twist that they do with Chris being the person in the classroom Mm -hmm. that is, you know, distorted. And I love that sequence as well. Because again, you're taking something from the original, but you're really making it unique and putting it in a different context. That works. When you're just taking something and lifting it, it does kind of fall a little bit short. I can't think of a better note to end the discussion on this movie on. Because I think that really, (laughs) it really encapsulates it perfect in terms of like, trying to do its own thing or succeeding when it does that versus mimicking the past and coming up short. And I think that really encapsulates it. So sadly, this is like the end of our discussion of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, <laughs> which is my favorite franchise. And I think we're going to switch now to like a becoming a baking podcast at this point. Um, where do we go? But I want to ask my panel right now, where can we find each of you? LB, tell us about what's going on yes. with the Grumpire. What's going on right now? Um, well, uh, we, we have a new 
episode podcast episode coming out probably in the next couple of weeks um, we're actually mm-hmm. talking about two remakes um ha- halloween rob i like to say robert zombies halloween mm-hmm. and um the 2006 black christmas mm. um so uh, in our show we can c- compare and contrast the two movies like our guest comes on um brings us a movie that he or she doesn't really like but it is also very popular <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, they talk about why they don't like the movie and in this case it's going to be uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween um, and then they offer the alternate which is uh, a movie that's like similar in theme in some way you know it, it can be whatever way that they choose um, which is uh, the Black Christmas remake so th- this person in particular hates Rob Zombie's Halloween and loves Black Christmas mm-hmm. so like th- that's that's our show but that, that's coming up in the next couple of weeks it's being edited right now um, as far as other Grumpire stuff I mean we would just have uh, articles online, you know, um, every now and then we'll post something. So uh, you can check that out at grumpire.com. Um, you can find me online uh, on Twitter, and my at is at ghoulie school, like, like ghoulies and then school, but like, you know, I, it, I, I kind of hate my at, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think <laughs> I feel silly saying it, but yeah. That, that's me. And it, I, what I really enjoy about this site is that there are no sacred cows on yeah. Grumpire. And it's a site that's not afraid to go against the grain. And it doesn't do it in a way that like, obviously like a couple weeks ago, there was the call, the review um, on Bly Manor that yeah. they, it was started with the line, um, I really hate horror and everything to do with it. <laughs> I think horror is stupid. Now here is like, 5,000 words about a horror series when there are, and that's, everyone's got to eat, but there are so many people that like (laughs) love and appreciate the genre, like New Yorker, you could hire someone. Grumpire doesn't do that. Grumpire, I think, takes like a much more, hey, these are the things we love, but just because we love them, it doesn't mean they're above criticism. Right. And and we're not always negative. It's not like that kind of thing. We're not at all. Like we, we might have that reputation, but um, given the name Grumpire, but I was like, going to say it, yes. You know, it's definitely <laughs> it's it's kind of a um, I don't, don't want to say inside joke, but like uh, a lot of people think I'm very negative, which I'm I'm not really. I just like to be fair when I talk about art. Mm-hmm. So listen, assholes, she's not fucking negative, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and Nicole, can you tell us about this? You mentioned it before we started. Can you tell us about this upcoming show that you have? Yeah, so I'm so excited. Um, I have recorded a couple of episodes that will be coming out uh, for a podcast called Bodies of Horror. And it's going to be focused on disability and horror and talking about the themes, the characters, um, representation, all of that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, Anatomy of a Scream is the network, and they're just kind of getting up and going. So, um, that's going to be coming out really soon, and I am really, really excited. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's always been a piece of. Uh, the conversation that's been missing and um, you know I think honestly one of the things that really inspired me 
to uh, double down on this was um, the psychoanalysis uh, podcast to give shine to mental health. And Horan is like, this is so good, so fantastic. Someone needs to do something similar for physical disabilities, intellectual and developmental disabilities. And so I'm I'm really, really excited. Wow. I I actually teach them both a tear, excuse me. <laughs> um thank you. Um I I really appreciate that and I really can't think of a higher compliment. So um thank you. Um I'm really looking forward to listening to it too. I'm definitely excited to hear this show. So please let us know when that comes out. Um, Brian, um, newly minted columnist now, not just contributor, but columnist. Yeah, I have a column at Bloody Disgusting now uh, called Gods and Monsters, uh, focusing on classic horror. Um, the second edition of that is coming out uh, probably within the next week or two. Um, I don't see any reason why I can't say what it's about. It's going to be about uh, the film The Innocence, um, which is uh, also based on Turn of the Screw, as is uh, The Haunting of Blind Manor. So uh, that would be a nice one to, to talk about. Um, the first one was on The Phantom of the Opera in 1925. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm really excited about this and really glad to have been given this opportunity yeah. and sort of amazed to be given this opportunity. It's something I've kind of always... Your work has appeared in a lot of places in the past year. Like you've been popping up everywhere in the horror sphere and you're writing, you continue to hone your craft and where else? And you mentioned like, is there another piece that you mentioned elsewhere that you were? Yeah. uh, I really do want to mention a piece for Manor Vellum that I have coming out this Friday. Uh, We postponed it a week because of the election week. Uh, it's all about The Shining and Dr. Sleep. Um, I honestly feel it's the best piece I've ever written. Um, and I'm, I'm just really hoping uh, to get some eyes on it um, when it does come out on Friday. Um, so just uh, uh, want to mention that one. Well, we want to thank all of you for joining us tonight. I mean, for me tonight, you know, it's... Um... I feel like this was a nice balance overall of like um, that this film we kind of needed because like, I'll be very honest listeners. Like when I go back and listen to the films that we go really hard on um, those are my least favorite shows. And it's not that we just champion everything and everything is awesome. And we're not super rah, rah, we're critical where criticism needs to be. But I think that also making a movie is very hard and nobody sets out to make a terrible movie. Um, but I think that like, we can still respect what there is to like pull out of in a good way. And as others have said, I think Jerry has said this better than I will. Every movie is somebody's favorite movie. So, you know, like we try to, at least be if critical at least respectful of that so um i'm hoping that there is more nightmare on elm street to talk about in the future i really love this franchise it's what i grew up on 
they along with like the scream movies are my comfort movies um they've gotten me through some good times and bad times so for our listeners we encourage you if you like what you've heard her to hear today go ahead and subscribe to us hit that big old subscribe button rate us review us follow us on twitter at pod and pendulum we have a facebook group if you search facebook and pod and the pendulum you'll find us um if you can support us on patreon um, we are very unique in that we're a podcast with a patreon it's a new thing no one's really doing that yet <laughs> we're trying to get it on the ground floor um but i'll tell you like this week you know my urban legend special edition came in my house and haunted hill special edition came in for our patreon show on that and like that's where the money goes when you support our show is we invest it back into the show so we're not so we're able to do some research and dive really deep to get some books to get better editing equipment um if you can kick in please go to patreon.com pod and pendulum you get access to all of our bonus episodes access to our slack channel and depending on the level there are a few other goodies there as well i need to do a better job managing the patreon site but you know we're, we're getting there we just put up an episode part one of the the blob um and i think it's the best bonus show we've done to date except for all the other ones which are pretty awesome (laughs) we'll be back we'll be back next week um it is either going to be the first urban legend show or we may have like a bonus elm street episode with some interviews we did it's going to depend on um and on like what else we can kind of put together between now and Friday. But everyone out there, please wear a mask, socially distance, wash your hands, be safe, and we will see you next week.